0: Welcome to all of you who are gathered here in the sanctuary and those joining us at home. We're so grateful. Let me ask you, how many of you guys are list kind of people? You, you make lists regularly, whether, maybe you do it the old-fashioned way. How many of you still use paper and pen, you know, every once in a while? Or you do it on your phone. How many of you are like me, that you've now made your phone note thing as your whole list thing, and it just keeps growing with new notes constantly? Or maybe you just do it in your mind. You keep lists for groceries you need, or maybe for those points that you want to remember to bring up at that always thrilling marriage discussion that everybody has to have every once in a while. Um, Lists tend to populate our thinking, and I don't know about you, but I get a certain level of satisfaction, almost a a contented sigh every time I'm able to put a big red check mark in front of that item that I have crossed off my list. Do you guys feel the same way? You know, I think one of the greatest discoveries, one of the greatest creations that has happened in the last several years is in texting and in the word documentation. And that is the ability to do what's called a strike through. So that when you have a line that you have done, you, you don't just put an X in front of it anymore. You actually have the ability to put one line straight through it. Or they've even come up with what is called now a double strike through. So, like for me, if you were to look at my notes and how I do things, when I have really got things done, it's not just a strike through, now it's a double strike through. I want to make sure I feel the deep sense of peace. And satisfaction that comes from being able to have accomplished something I work hard at clearing things off of my desk at clearing my lists um, I don't know how you guys do email uh, I, I don't know what your thing is but email generally speaking for me at least comes into my Gmail inbox and what I do is I leave every email in my inbox until I have actually taken whatever is the appropriate action for that email and so, like, if you were to look at my email today, there are actually only two items in it. One is a direction that I need for tomorrow evening that I didn't want to delete because I want to make sure I have that ready for me. And the other one is just something that I need to make sure I get off and I haven't done it yet. So I only have two emails in my inboxes. How many inbox emails do you guys think you have right now? Like, if you were to look at your phone, how many do you think you have? Six hundred, thousands. Okay. My wife, my wife, Karen who's on top of everything she's brilliant she's smart she's able to keep a hold of every thread everywhere when I look at my wife's phone and it has this little red dot in front of email by the way I don't like red dots on anything and if I see red dots and I can't figure out what it is I actually delete the app because I don't like red dots it means there's something wrong my wife has a red dot in front of her email and in that red dot is a number That number is how many emails she has in her inbox. It was, I asked her, I asked her, I said, I want to know, how many do you have? It was 155,536 emails. I got to tell you, just knowing it gives me anxiety. (laughs) I'm thinking, no, that's wrong. You're supposed to cross things off your list. File them in the right folder. For God's sake. He did everything orderly. Please get rid of them. For me, when I'm able to finally cross something off of my list, there is honestly a deep sense of like a, a sigh of contentment. The world is in order. Everything is okay. I have now accomplished something. I've gotten it done. But there is something about unfinished business and that's really what I want to talk to you about today Uh, there's something about unfinished business that really bugs us and it's not because I happen to be OCD and I'm not it's it's a human issue it's the realization that none of us is going to live long enough on this planet to get everything done that we could ever want to get done um, I don't know if uh, you guys, uh, in fact, let me just say, how many of you guys have ever visited Mount Rushmore? Okay, in the whole place, there's been two. Two. Congratulations, you won the prize. Um, I don't know if you know this, uh, I like to watch specials on TV, especially like uh, National Geographic specials. Uh, And so one of the specials was about Mount Rushmore. Did you know that Mount Rushmore is not done? That when they originally made the plans, they were going to include not only what you see, they were going to include two Native Americans, Red Cloud, who was the chief of the Sioux tribe, and Sacagawea, as well as Buffalo Bill Cody, Lewis and Clark, and Susan B. Anthony. And when they were going to actually do the work, they weren't going to just do the heads, they were actually going to chisel into the rock all the way down to their waist. And instead, we're left with four big heads. An unfinished job that has never been completed because we lacked the finances and the wherewithal to do this. Unfinished business. Uh, did you know that Michelangelo has more unfinished works of art than he does finished works of art? If you go look on it, check, Google it. I mean, it's all over the place. Uh, all of us know of people who didn't finish something, who are good starters, but not good finishers. And sometimes the reason they don't finish is because their life is cut short. How many of you know somebody whose life was cut short way too early? Uh, It happens all the time. When I think of it, I think about people like um, John F. Kennedy, killed so young, or Alexander the Great, died at 33 years of age having conquered the known world and yet didn't finish all that he set out to. There's only been one person in all of history who has ever finished every single thing he had ever intended to finish and to do. His name is Jesus Christ. He said it from the beginning, by the way. Back in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus had intended to be a finisher from the beginning. In 1869, history records the completion of the great transcontinental railway that connected the east coast from the west coast. And knowing it was going to happen, they decided they wanted to make that day when it was finally completed, a very special day. And so it was going to actually be joining the railway at the junction of New Mexico and Colorado. And plans had been made, and they had taken the railroad ties, and they had wrapped laurel flowers around it, and they had silver spikes ready. And the two governors of each of those states took those two silver spikes, and they drove them into the railroad ties. And when they did, a cheer went up, and across the whole nation went the statement, it is finished. We now had the ability to ride a train from the east coast to the west coast uninterrupted, not having having to get off at all. 2,000 years earlier than that day, another great event had happened. We sang about it this morning. Spikes were driven not into a laurel decorated tie, but into the hands and feet of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And they weren't silver spikes. They were iron spikes. And when that happened, a shout went up from heaven and across the planet earth, it is finished. Would you turn to John 19? Uh, This is going to be our text for today. We've been looking at Jesus' famous last words. And today we come to the sixth word. There's only one more that I'm going to be looking at next week. Today we come to the sixth word. Seven words that Jesus spoke while hanging on the cross. And we had as our premise from the beginning that last words spoken by an individual have significance. They're important to people. John chapter 19 and verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And and Ben dealt with that last week, so we heard about that. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The thing I want to emphasize today is it is finished. Not a whimper of despair, but I believe a shout of victory. When I think of words of victory throughout time, I think of uh, words like when Douglas MacArthur said, I will return. Or when uh, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon the first time and said, the eagle has landed. But when Jesus said, it is finished, What was he meaning by that? What what actually was accomplished? What was finished? The irony is that when Jesus said it, most of the people who heard it didn't understand what he meant at all. They thought he meant, I'm finished. They thought he meant, he's finished. They thought the day's entertainment was finished because you understand that for the people of that day, a crucifixion was kind of like the Roman gladiator circus. It was a time of entertainment. So they thought their entertainment was over. Pilate thought, my wife's nightmares might finally end. Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, thought maybe finally this incursion into this established religion that he was in charge of, this assault against it, would finally be over. The apostles thought their transform class was finally over, their time of discipleship. Even the devil himself was wrong. Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that had the devil understood what was happening that day upon the cross, he never would have crucified Jesus in the first place. Some people, some commentators I read, believe that what Jesus meant was his suffering was finished. And I'm sure that was a part of it. But I think there's more to it. Because Jesus didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. The word finished in the Greek, and I want to put it up on the screen, and if you don't have this, you you need to put this in your Bible, in the front of it, in the back of it. You need to put it in your phone. You need to know this word. This is a word that everybody, every Christian ought to know. It's the word tetelestai. Tetelestai. It has several meanings to it, at least five that I could find. And what I want to do is I want to talk about those five meanings that I think Jesus actually meant. Tetelestai. It is finished. One word. We see it as three English words, but it was one word. He cried out, Tetelestai. It is finished. The first thing that I think it means is he accomplished or he fulfilled God's promises. For thousands of years, prophecies had been made about a Savior, a Messiah, who would come and that he would deliver God's people. There are over 380 prophecies alone directly related to the Savior. God didn't promise just a Savior, but He told us how we would know who that Savior was and what that Savior would accomplish. For example, following Jesus' death and resurrection, He was one day walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who were very sad because they didn't recognize Jesus and realized that He was alive again. But as they were walking along, the Scripture says this, Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Basically, what Jesus did is He said, all of that stuff that was said about the Messiah has been fulfilled in Me. I am the Savior of mankind. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says this, For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes and amen. Jesus fulfilled every promise the Father had ever made about a Savior. When Jesus died on the cross and He said, It is finished. What He meant, at least in part, was I have fulfilled all of God's promises. The second thing that tetelestai means is He satisfied God's justice. Justice has been accomplished God had established an order for the universe and it was intended to function under those rules and regulations under those laws there were physical laws like the law of gravity uh, the law of physics the law of thermodynamics there are physical laws by which our planet actually functions but there were also God-given moral laws or spiritual laws that are just important. And God established them way back in the Garden of Eden when He said to Adam and Eve, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat it you shall surely die. And then later on, He gave further rules and regulations to Moses with the intent that the children of Israel would spread those moral laws everywhere they went. That's why back in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God called the nation of Israel a, a people or a kingdom of priests. The intent was that those priests would spread God's word and God's moral laws everywhere they went. Israel was to be ambassadors of God's righteousness. So those spiritual laws, I want you to get this. Those spiritual laws are for everyone, including you. Um, There was a problem with the plan, though. The plan was that humanity, mankind, couldn't seem to keep the rules. We couldn't seem to obey. How many of you, if you were honest, how many of you have broken broken the rules about masks? Just masks, just one thing, one mask. You, know, you took it off, and you know you're supposed to have it on, but it was too hard to breathe. I play basketball on Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings now that basketball has opened up again, and we have to wear masks. You're running up and down the court playing full-court basketball with masks on, and I got to tell you, some of them are funny. Some of the guys have a mask that's brought down to about here, so their nose can at least breathe. Some of them pull it down just below the bottom lip. I still got my mask on we all tend to have a hard time just obeying the rules, the regulations that set before us. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 8 when he says this, the law of Moses was unable to save us. Why? Because of the weakness of our sinful nature. That's the problem. We couldn't keep the rules. But Paul goes on. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have, And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. He said the first problem is that we're all lawbreakers. We all break the rules. We do. How many of you guys are speeders? Maybe you didn't break out of the mask. How many of you guys speed once in a while? You've gone over the speed limit, even one mile an hour. You're a lawbreaker. We all are. We've all done it at times. I can remember when Jennifer had her accident and we're speeding up to Strong Memorial Hospital. I didn't care what policeman, what sheriff, what New York State trooper got behind me. He wasn't going to catch us getting to the hospital. He could give us a ticket once we got there. We all are lawbreakers. The second problem is that justice demands that lawbreakers pay the penalty. That's the problem. And what's the penalty if you break God's moral law? Well, God tells us in Ezekiel 18, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. Death was the penalty for breaking God's moral laws. The moral law that God had established demanded a penalty, a price be paid. So upon the cross that day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus fulfilled God's justice when he died in your place. He took the penalty for your breaking of the law. He fulfilled all God's promises. He satisfied God's justice. And number three, he paid a debt that I owed. We used to sing a song. Uh, some of you guys would remember it. It went something like this. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, amazing grace the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. That's the third thing that tetelestai means. He paid a debt that I could never pay. I told you at the beginning that tetelestai had like five different meanings, but one of the meanings was this. Uh, It meant paying off a debt. Archaeologists have found papyrus scrolls and parchments that were like debts for items that were purchased or for loans that were made. And if that debt was paid or if that loan was paid off, at the bottom would be the word tetelestai, paid in full. Colossians 1.14 says this, His Son, Jesus Christ, paid the price to free us, which means that our sins are forgiven. He paid our sin debt. So what sins that you have committed did Jesus pay for? Maybe, maybe He paid for those little white lies. You know, the, the ones that you do to either get out of trouble just a little bit, or maybe you do it because you don't want to offend somebody. Like when your spouse comes up and says, Honey, how does this make me look? And you don't want to tell the truth because you have an opinion you know won't make your spouse feel good about it. So you tell a little white lie. Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus died for that. Maybe just for those little white lies. Or, or maybe it was that bad attitude you have once in a while. You know, you call it waking up on the wrong side of the bed just being a little bit grouchy, snappy, a little bit snippy with people? Or maybe it's the overreaction. Is it possible that every once in a while we overreact to something? We have a reaction that maybe goes a little bit beyond it. Your spouse does something and you blow up, and all of a sudden, if you really step back and look at it, you realize my reaction isn't commensurate to what's going on. And maybe you're bringing all of your life history into that moment, and you overreact for just that moment. So what sins did Jesus really pay for? Which of those? I want to suggest to you exactly that Jesus paid for all of them, including the big ones, you know, like murder, lust, adultery. He paid for them all. Every sin that you have ever committed and hear this, every sin you're going to commit, Jesus has already paid for. He's paid the full price and he's able to stamp your debt Paid in full, tetelestai. Um, have you ever been in a restaurant? My wife and I have had this happen a number of times, and every time we're just in awe and grateful for it. Have you ever been in a restaurant where you had a nice meal and you're waiting for the bill to come, and it just seems like the, the server isn't you know, paying any attention to you anymore? And finally, you raise your hands and you get his attention, and he comes over to the table, or she does. And you say, we're just waiting on our bill. And they smile and they say, someone's already anonymously paid for your bill. We're like, what? Who? Oh, they didn't want to be known. They've just already paid for your meal. And they not only paid for your meal, they paid for dessert if you want dessert. And they've also paid the tip. They've paid everything. Have you ever had that happen to you? That when you get done, it's all been covered. Well, I want to suggest to you that Jesus actually covered everything for you. Everything that you could ever do, he has paid the price for. He's paid your sin penalty. But there's another use of that word, Tetalesti. It was often used as a battle cry. When two armies would come together and they would fight together as warriors and the one began to beat the other one, they would cry out, tetelestai, we've won. We've defeated our enemy. So the fourth thing that I want to say to you is that upon the cross, Jesus defeated the fear of death. And I've worded it that way on purpose because we all know that we're going to have to deal with death. Death's a reality for all of us. It's appointed unto every man once to die. That's what the Scripture says. But at some level or another, I think all of humanity struggles with a fear of death. We struggle with that. The wonder of the cross is that Jesus not only paid off our sin debt, but in His resurrection, He conquered death completely. Listen to this verse. Uh, these are just a three verses I put together. Romans 5.17 says this, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.14 says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die, and only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all who lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. I love that portion. He defeated the enemy and... We who were slaves to fear of dying no longer need to fear. 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't know any other verse, I know you're supposed to know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. I know that. But a chapter that's like God, the gospel in a nutshell is 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't know that, you don't have to memorize the verses, but at least know its address. 1 Corinthians 15:51 says this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which means we're not all going to die, because Jesus could come back while we're still alive. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And by the way, when it talks about corruptible or incorruption, it's talking about that which can decay, that which can rot. And this mortal must put on immortality. That which can die must put on that which cannot die. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or O hell, where is your victory? We used to live in the fear of death. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have ever had this experience where you're in that moment, not quite fully asleep, but almost asleep, and you have this feeling of falling. Have you, any of you ever had that? Like you're plummeting and it feels like it's cataclysmic, like it's deadly, like something bad's going to happen? I want to tell you, most psychologists say that's linked to the fear of death. We feel like in going to sleep, in that moment, like we could go to sleep and never wake up. Well, we used to fear death now we no longer need to fear death because the scripture says Christ has swallowed up death with his life we don't have to fear it at all it's no longer an end point for us it's a transition point it's where we go from life to life abundant life eternal forever Death means we're immediately transported into his presence Uh, I've had loved ones who have died even recently. Uh, In this past year during COVID, we had my mother-in-law pass away. But the second she breathed her last breath here, she breathed the breath of his presence forever. That's the truth that we have. We no longer need to fear death or what death could do. Is it a pleasant experience? I don't know. I've never been there. But I know his presence is pleasant because I've been in his presence, and that makes it worth it all. He is a victor not only over death and hell, but he has the keys to prove it. He says, behold, I am alive. I was dead, but now I'm alive again, and I have the keys of death and hell. He possesses it all. The fifth thing that was accomplished on the cross is he destroyed Satan's power to control me. He not only had the keys of death, but he had the keys of hell, what is considered the domain of the enemy. On the cross, Jesus destroyed Satan's power to control me at all. Romans 8:3 says God declared an end to sin's control over us. From a human standpoint, when Jesus was dying on the cross, it looked like Satan was winning. He thought he was winning. And much of the time when we look at the world around us, it seems like Satan is winning. Like this world is going to hell in a handbasket. Sometimes even in our personal lives, it can feel like Satan is winning. But when Jesus died upon the cross, the enemy thought he had won too. He thought, finally, I have killed him. I have killed God's son. And all of these people are now mine. But within three days, he realized with horror the mistake he had made and realized that none of them are his. Jesus died for you. He died for me. He died for mankind and for those who would receive him. 1 John 4 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Because you are now in God's family, you don't need to fear the enemy at all. I've read, and even in reading commentators, sometimes they present it like there's this cosmic battle going on between God and Satan, and we're hoping that at the end, God will be able to pull it out i got to tell you, this isn't even a balanced battle. With one thought, God could vanquish the enemy to nothingness forever, to obliteration, annihilation. God has already won the battle for us upon the cross. What we are called to do is to remember who we are and whose we are. Because the only tool the enemy has is lies and intimidation. And when he comes and he whispers in your ear lies that you know are contrary to what God has said, you need to do the same thing Jesus did when the enemy came and tempted him. You need to remind him of what God has said. What has God said about you? Not, not what do you feel in your own spirit sometimes because even John in his final words in his epistle, says, I don't even let my own heart condemn me because sometimes we can feel things that aren't true. What has God said about you? What has God said about what he thinks about you? He says, my thoughts towards you, are kind thoughts, the good thoughts, thoughts of a hope and a future. He places his love upon you, his acceptance, his favor upon you. You need to remind the devil when he comes and whispers in your ear what God has said about you. He says in Colossians, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. We're no longer living in the world system. We're living in the kingdom of God. When I was a kid on the farm, um, we raised uh, hogs and we raised beefers, milk cows, even had a couple of horses just for fun. Uh, but we didn't raise chickens. I don't know how many of you guys have ever raised chickens? Have chickens? We didn't raise chickens. But for one summer, I worked with my cousin on a chicken farm. And i got to tell you, it, forget pig farm. Pigs are clean compared to chickens. Yeah. It, it, was, it was the worst job in the whole world. But at the end of the day, we could take a chicken. It would be like, ours, like our like part of our pay. You could have a chicken. And the way you would do it is you would take that chicken, and you would either wring its neck, kill it, or you would take it and you would lay it on a little stump that we had right there. I know this sounds gr- gruesome, but it's not. It's not. It's fine. And we would take a little axe and we would chop off the chicken's head. And you would think it would be dead. But do you know again and again that stupid chicken would run around with its head cut off? It did! Well, I want to suggest to you that's the problem for the devil. His head's been cut off. He just doesn't realize it yet. He's already dead. He's already been judged by God. God has already declared that you're not his. You're not the enemy's. Your God's child says in this way, God took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin. And God openly displayed to the whole world. Christ's triumph at the cross where your sins were all taken away. All taken away. Tetelestai, it is finished. He has accomplished everything that the father had intended at the cross. So every time the enemy stands before you, accusing you in some way, because let's be honest, we all fail in some ways. We all blow it. We all sin. In fact, John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth of God is not in you. We all sin at times, every one of us, from the highest, the most holy person you can think of to the lowest. We all sin. But when we sin, and that accuser of the brethren, the devil, Comes before God in accusing us of our sin, Jesus stands up and says, Father, uh, objection? Objection? He says, What? He says, "Um, The penalty has already been paid. You can't charge them again. That's called double jeopardy. The price has been fully paid. The difference between Christianity, between our faith and every other religion, is the difference between two words do and done every other religion says you got to do you got to do you got to do you got to do, do in order to earn God's approval in some way only our faith says done everything that needs to be done has been done by Jesus Christ would you stand with me tetelestai that's a good word you got to memorize that word tetelestai it is finished Jesus has accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for our sake. We are the beneficiaries. You know, sometimes we have parents or grandparents who pass away. And when they pass away, it's very possible that we might be the beneficiary of either some funds or some property or whatever it might be. Well, we are the beneficiaries of Christ's death. And he has left us as his heirs to receive all of his promises Everything has been fulfilled in Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, today, on this day of March 14th, 2021, we are grateful that as we have been looking at the last words of Christ upon the cross, that one of those was not muttered in defeat. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. Redemption is finished. Salvation has been purchased. And it's ours. We are the recipients of the grace of God. Our sins have been washed away. The debt has been paid. All of your promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. And the enemy has no more control over us we no longer need to fear death and hell because we're in Christ and he's in us. Father, my prayer as I conclude today is that we as your people would actually feel the reality of your presence. Lord, I know that you're with us. You promised us you're with us and we know that by faith we believe that. We lay hold of it. But there's also those times when you show up and you make us aware with our tangible feelings of your presence lord over this next week as we get ready to come towards palm sunday and then easter sunday i pray that you would make us more and more aware of your presence which is the fulfillment of all of your promises help us to live our lives seeing you around us every day in different situations that arrive that we're aware of you're with us even in those We want to declare, Father, today that we are yours and we know that you're ours. That's what the Beloved said in Song of Solomon and that's what we declare is the truth. That we're yours. Our sins have been forgiven. We have confessed them. We have repented of them. And all of those sins have been forgiven. Every one of them. And that now we have the privilege of walking in your presence. That's our belief. That's what we hold to, Father. Let that become a reality for every single person throughout this week and these coming weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday. I pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great rest of your day. You can